Join me this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 32. To begin reading in verse 3 and read down through verse 9, and then we will pray and begin to consider. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotment. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we take up your word, it is our desire that you would take your word and bring it to our hearts and minds with freshness, that you would give to us in it a clarity and an understanding. Lord, we pray that the few thoughts that we will consider this morning out of this passage, that you would be uh, pleased to really stir our hearts with a sense of um, how blessed we are, how rich and powerful and mighty you are, to just consider briefly the scope of your powerful hand that has ruled and reigned since creation, to see something of the scope of it, to consider, God, the response of your creatures, even those with special privileges to you. Lord, that we might understand and we might know and we might honor and worship you. We thank you uh, for your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so here today we take up really what is the third consideration of this section of Scripture, this, what, what traditionally was called the Song of Moses, but what we've looked at is actually a song of God through Moses to the children of Israel. God told Moses, teach the people this song. And so he gave them the song, and the song we also saw was to be a reminder to them. It was to, in the years coming, when they would go astray, when they would become disobedient, this song as they sang it was to confront themselves. They were supposed to, in it, hear of God, hear of his power, remember his might, remember his hand of care and provision and providence, and then they were to be convicted because of their own sinfulness, their own senseless rebellion and behavior. And as we... Uh, Take this up today, having looked at a few thoughts initially in the introduction concerning God and, and into a, a little bit concerning the rebellion of people, the people, I want to draw our attention just by way of introduction, really titled the sermon today, Mere Humans and the Most High. It tells us here in this section of scripture in verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... 
Now in this section, remember as we're coming to this song, he had begun by even saying those simple words, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. That name Yahweh that would draw the people's remembrance to the fact that God is. Back to the idea of Exodus 3 where God gave his name to Moses. That God is the self-existent God. And everything that exists is because he has brought it into being. Just asserts his sovereignty, his singularity. His preeminence and power that he was before all things and everything came into being through him. Now as you come down, it's taking up another of what we often call the names of God. Now, that What's so interesting about this is you, you go into the world and they have in, in different religions and different things that men have manufactured, the myths that men's minds have devised, they have many gods and many names but the scripture teaches us the truth that there is but one god and the scripture is pleased to reveal that god with many names now let's not get confused it's not that those of a particular religion can call they refer to god as uh, um Vishnu and some refer to God as Allah and some refer to God and that they're all just different names for the same God That is not what we're talking about here Those are different names used in different faiths for different gods of which Most are false. There is only one God and that is the God of the Bible the God of the scriptures, the God of the word, has revealed himself and the reason why he has given us a multitude of names is those names are descriptive in their nature. And so each one of them will give us some sense, reveal some aspect, some element that moves us to amazement, that moves our heart to worship. It might speak of his righteousness. It might, might speak of his power and his might. It might speak of the way that he provides and cares. And so there's these various names here in this one. We've already seen the term Yahweh, most commonly uh, translated Jehovah. That self-existent one here as we come down to the verse that I mentioned a moment ago in verse 8 it says the most high now that that's the word that again some of you may be familiar with some from some old songs that's Elion or sometimes it's combined El Elion God God most high um, in the most translations your M for most and your H for high will be capitalized in some older translations they left the M small and the H big which doesn't make sense because it's all translating the same word and it's not really just translating the word it's referring to God so you, you consider that it's wanting us to understand that God is above all things exalted majestic high it speaks of his transcendency his supremacy his exaltedness the idea is that is it wants you to even contemplate things that you might consider high 
things that are considered lofty, things that are considered raised. And in our minds, you have those kind of things, and men even fix their ideas and experiences on things that are high. Remember once, years ago, reading a book about a man who um, got very into hiking and climbing. And so he got involved and he tried to climb the highest peak in his state. But then that wasn't enough for him. He needed to find, well, where is the highest peak in his country? And then he, he ascended that one. No, I need to find the highest peak in the neighboring countries and on and on until in those days he motivated people to allow him to go and attempt to climb Mount Everest. Because in the minds of those who are climbers, that's the pinnacle. That's the highest. And if I can get up there, then I've achieved something special. Everything else in the world looks, is looked down on from that most highest peak. And many have attempted to ascend to that peak. Not many successfully, actually. Most of the first ones are lost even. Never to be found again, never sure, and stories told about them. Those who finally uh, reach that uh, are very few in number. Many get up to the, the nearest summit where they're ready to ascend, and weather sets in. And they're stopped, and they can't go any further. And the whole thing is spoiled because of the weather, and they have to go back down, never achieving that point. And even those who have reached it, those few in number, they're praised, they're noted by men. But I've got to tell you this, if they stand on the highest peak of Mount Everest, they're not even at the highest point of creation. Because they can look up. And you know what's still up? The sun, the moon, the stars. There's much more than that. And so men sets their, uh, set their hives on lo heights on loftier goals. Let us go to the moon. Let us see if we can reach to that. And if man stands on the moon, has he now reached the highest point of, of the universe? No. So let's plan trips to Mars. Let's go on and on and on. And I ask you, no matter how far man goes, there's more that's higher and loftier and that's just what is seen and what is created. And so it is unfathomable, the expanse of the universe to the mind of man. They've yet to begun to tap and accurately calculate what they think might be the end of it. Like I tell you, each year they continue through the Hubble telescope and other means to say, now we're seeing farther than ever before. And now we're seeing farther than ever before. And now we're, this time we're going to see the end of it, only to realize they don't see the end of it. And listen, that is but a glimpse of the power of God that he created the entire universe by the word of his power. So however my, however many, however mighty, however majestic the cosmos may seem, God is higher than all of that. In the ways that men manufacture their gods, they, they have gods of different levels at times and different powers. You know, one who's, who's really strong in the sea you know, and, and, and one who, who's really fast. 
And then maybe they even have in their ideas a, a God who's kind of a father of lesser gods. And they endow them with certain powers and supremacies and maybe they throw lightning bolts and hurl this and that. But the reality is this. All of their gods end up getting embroiled in battles. They have limited scopes of power. And, and the, re, the scriptures really continue to unfold this that you might understand this. No matter how high, no matter how powerful, no matter how exalted, no matter how majestic, men may conceive of their gods, the God is most high. Higher than all of that. In fact, you can accumulate all of the imagined powers of those false gods. And it is actually the true God who has all of those powers and a multitude exceedingly beyond those powers. Do you want me to describe it to you? I cannot. <laughs> to declare to you the full scope of it? I cannot. Because I cannot conceive of it and words cannot convey it because God is most high. I can simply ascribe to him the highest superlative imaginable. And it is unending. It is eternal. It is endless. And so this is the most high God. I love the way that the word of God unfolds this, uh, this sense for us. It speaks in, in that sense. It speaks of one who has total supremacy. Total possession. Total majesty. Above all and over all. Most high is a big term. Psalm 89 verse 7 says it like this. A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. All of the beings that he has created with all of the scope of their various powers. The angels of death who will bring forth plagues, etc. Whatever you may think of in the counsel, God is greatly is feared in the counsel of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. You know, that, that's very important to note. I mean, on occasion, there can be someone who reaches an exceptional level of skill. Maybe it's playing a particular sport. Uh, someone who is an exceptional soccer player. And maybe, generally speaking, maybe in his high school, he was by far better than everybody else. Maybe at college, he was by far better than everybody else. And so he's used to being better than those around him. But he could be put in other environments with the national team. On international European squads. Where suddenly, from being the best, he's, he's just one of them. And not exceedingly superior and just normal. The, the, what it's wanting us to remember is this. You, you put God or conceive of God in any group with any assembly of anyone. And God is awesome above them all. We will all find a place where, where, where we are mediocre. And some of us may not think that we can find a place where we're exceedingly special. And that's all right. 
Because the important thing is this, we know and worship a God who is most high and most glorious. And that he who is most high and most exalted would in grace set his heart upon us and love us and treasure us in Christ Jesus is exceptional. And so I don't have to find my value in, or my sense of worth in talents or abilities. I, I actually just glory in the worth, exceeding worth of Christ and stand amazed that he would have any consideration of me. Say with the psalmist in Psalm 8, what is man, O God, that you are mindful of him? says also, again, just expanding these ideas in Psalm 97, verse uh, nine, uh, 9. For you, O Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are far exalted above all gods. Even the term, not that there are other gods, all gods, all rulers, all principalities, all authorities, all powers. He is above all. There's no way to make it clear. We do, we're also aware that in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14, where the scripture is referring to the king of Babylon, that many interpret to be a, a parallel with the enemy, he considered himself, it actually says it this way, I, he said to himself, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. But then verse 15 says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Here was one who thought, I can match the Most High. I can match him in power. I can match him in authority. I can match him in majesty. I can match him in possession. And what did he find out when he set himself up to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Not only could he not ascend above the clouds, not only could he not compare, but he would find that, he, that the one who is most high could send him to the back of the line, to the absolute bottom, to the farthest reaches of Sheol, that, that even the, whoever might seemingly be of secondary significance, when he comes up to God, there's nothing. Nothing by comparison. And so that is the, the big difference between uh, the most high and mere humans. And actually with the mere humans, it's been so sad in this passage to see how they're described. Back in verse 5, it says they've dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you repay pay the Lord thus? Verse 6, foolish and senseless people. Is he not your father who created you? who made you and established you. So here they were. God had made them. Now, this is true in a sense of mankind, didn't he? The scripture says uh, in the New Testament, Paul speaks of even the Cretan philosophers say, in him we live and move and have our being. So if you then being God's offspring, you shouldn't make God in the form of gold and stone and silver because it does not make any sense. He's the one who made you. And so when God created all mankind as he is sovereign over them. And what did men do? They followed the corruption of their heart to where it was continually evil all the time. And God 
devoured the whole earth with a deluge, with a flood, delivering only Noah and his family. And again, from Noah and his family, God built up and established and spread people throughout the whole earth. And what did men do? Did men learn their lessons? Or did they continue to turn away from God, continue to disobey, continue to really follow the desires of their own heart? They did. I mean, we we even recognize that and remember the simplicity of the instruction that God gave all the way back in the garden. Everything you can do, don't eat of that fruit. When they came out of the, the ark, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Spread abroad. And what did they say? No, we're going to stick together. We're going to build a city. We're going to do it our way. And then when they did, and God divided all of the nations, nonetheless, God in his mercy said, I'm going to take this one. This little, pathetic, weak one. The one of which it says of the children of Israel, verse 10, he found them in a desert land. In a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and he cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. It, it, it speaks of God's wonderful care. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. That flutters over its young. Spreading out his wings and catches them on its pinions. So here again it says. Okay. We see that God made the earth and children. Uh, the children of men. And they went their own way d- disobeying him. Then he again gave, gave what we might call a second opportunity. They again went away. Then God took one family from among all the families of the earth to make them a special nation and a special endowment. And I ask you, what did they do? God blessed them. God provided for them. God cared for them. Verse 15 tells us this. After God had given them so much blessing and and so much provision, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 32. But Jeshurun, which is, a re- which is a reference to the children of Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek, and then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Not only did they forsake him and scoff, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had recently been invented or come, whom their fathers had never even heard of. Listen to verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God that gave birth to you. I mean, wow. Do you ever ask yourself, what is wrong with men? And the scriptures tell us this all along. Men, because of the fall in Adam, are darkened in their understanding. Unable to come to a knowledge of the truth. Are by nature children of wrath. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. We know these words, we hear these things, but we, sometimes we ask, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. When men are left to themselves, they follow after sin. If it were not for the grace of God that is poured out upon us, all would be and remain children of wrath. But while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. He shined the light so that we are no longer in darkness. He gave us a new heart, one that is no longer set upon sin. 
and this is the mercies of God in grace, and that anybody would have any doubt, all of creation, with all of the opportunities and the demonstration of God's mercies, went astray. A second opportunity for all of creation following Noah, and again they abandoned and went astray. A special family separated unto God with extraordinary endowments and, and provision and protection and miracles and law and, and manifestations. And what did they do? They still turned away from God. So that mere humans have to say, and we say this, and, and, I, and it's, a, it's a good thing to say, but sometimes if we say it too much, it doesn't mean anything to us anymore. We'll often look at the world and sin in the world and say, but for the grace of God, there go I. If it wasn't for the grace of God, that could be me behaving like that, acting like that. And, and, and it, be, it becomes such a common phrase that we don't really grasp it. Maybe that's, that we say it, but don't really believe it. But for the grace of God, there go I. I mean, are we comfortable as we consider at times when we sing that amazing grace that saved a wretch like me? Or do we look at the world and say, yeah, saved me, but there are people far more wretched and far more worse and far uh, more despicable than I and indeed, there may be, but the note is this. We are all wretched and left to ourselves so that we sit back and say, if there is any good in me, it is what God himself has put in me by his grace in Christ. These sections are given again so that people might know. How, and, and oftentimes, if you read through the Old Testament, your, your heart and mind should at times be close to shattering and thinking, what is wrong with these children of Israel? God has given them everything. They've heard his voice, water out of a rock, manna from heaven. There is no question in their mind that he is God. He gave them victories over Egypt, victories over Og, victories over Bashan, victories in all these ways. And then when God says, go in and take the land, they say, we can't do it. They're too much for us. The, the condition of the heart of men. And, the, and that in that condition, God has nonetheless had much mercy on us. Now, with regard to the children of Israel here, it comes with a threat. Because here's what it says in verse 5. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Hosea chapter 9 verse 15 says evil every evil was theirs in Gilgal therefore there I began to hate them because of their wickedness their wicked deeds I will drive them out of my house I will love them no more all their princes are rebels and you think wow they had all of these privileges and benefits set before them, and they just constantly abused them. God had actually, when you read the rest of the, the closing section of Deuteronomy, God had said, if you keep my covenant, I am just going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to care for you. All of these things, if you keep my covenant. 
But if you break my covenant, all the cursings and plagues that have come on your enemies will come on you. Now, for you and me, I think when you hear that, is the decision not an easy one? Let me see here. Misery, suffering, pain, and loss. Blessing, prosperity, protection, and provision. Who's lining up over here? And yet God actually set these things before them. Choose. And they chose loss. They chose rebellion. They chose disobedience. They chose disinheritance. And you think, why? So much so that in, uh, later in Hosea, it says these words over in Hosea. God moves through the prophet that Hosea will have three children. And the first one mentioned in Hosea chapter 1 is Jezreel, which means God sows. And then, the, so that God is going to sow and God is going to ultimately reap a people for his own possession, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, that he will make members of his new covenant. He will put his law in their heart. They will be called by his name. He will, by his grace, change them. He will put his fear into their hearts that they will follow after him and not turn aside from doing them good. But listen to the children of Israel. He gives this warning to that old covenant nation and says these words in verse 6 of Hosea 1. She conceived again, second child, and bore a daughter. And the Lord said, or, uh, said to him, call her name no mercy. Now, this is a translation. Her name was not in English, no mercy. But it translates, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Is that not a frightening place to be? To be outside of the mercy of God. To, to realize this, no one is entitled to mercy. There was a sense in which under the terms of the old covenant, God offered to them mercy if they would keep the terms of that covenant. And they, as the scripture will often say, they broke faith. They breached the covenant. As Hebrews said, fault was found with the first covenant because they disobeyed. So they did not find mercy. But listen, the beauty is the new covenant that he's given us is in Christ Jesus. And unlike the first covenant, the old covenant, where there was a reminder of sin year after year, and there were sacrifices that had to be made year after year, and there was conditional elements to that, if you obey and if you follow, in the new covenant that is ours, it, it, it is attended with the mercies of God. And the mercies of God are ours in Christ, because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. Because Christ has fulfilled all the law on our behalf and what's so glorious about that he's not only fulfilled it on our behalf so that we are ever under the mercy of God 
But the mercy of God not only removes us from the punishment that we would rightly receive for the sins that we've done, it also removes us from the power and dominion that sin had over us. So we look at those children of Israel and we think, what's wrong with them that they would continue to go astray? With such promises and such threats, such visible power, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them is this. They were under the dominion and power of sin. And we say, well, what's wrong with all mankind? By nature, they're under the dominion and power of sin. Well, then how do we get out of that? By the mercies of God given us in Christ Jesus. Why will we be able by the grace of God to walk in obedience and faithfulness to as the New Testament calls us to pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord? We are able to do what they were not able to do because of the mercy of God that is given us in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so we, when we understand that, all of this, these challenging and struggling passages are to remind us, if it were not for God's divine grace and mercy, all would be lost. But praise God for His compassion and mercy and love that He has given us in Christ His Son. And not only that we would be on that final day delivered, but that in this life, His grace, mercy, and love is poured out upon us, and we are set free in Christ. And we are made new in Christ. And we are now able to walk in the light, which we were not able to do. And we are now children of the light, not children of darkness anymore. And it, it the further threatens there in Hosea chapter 1. Um, it says this, verse 9, And the Lord said, Call his name, this is a, the next son, Call his name, Not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. What a horrible thing to hear, isn't it? God had taken them, like bore them, protected them, nurtured them carried them, brought them all of the things, and now he looks upon them in their sinful estate, in their disobedience, and says, no mercy, not my people. There is no worse condition than that. It means utter condemnation. But look what it says for us in... Romans chapter 9, as this passage is quoted, and it speaks of God being this great God of mercy and compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God has not forgotten the remnant that He has chosen by grace. God has not ultimately declared, though He could, to all mankind, no mercy, not my people. If God was to do so, he would be just because that is what we deserve because of the darkness of our hearts and mind. But God has not said that. In his glorious character and mighty compassion and great love, he has that he has poured out upon us. It says this in Romans 9, 24. Even to us whom he has called not only from the Jews, 
but also from the Gentiles. So note this. Some would say, aha, the Jews are now cut off. He said to the Jews as a people, no mercy. Well, from among them, he calls Jews to himself. And you know what he says to those who he calls? Mercy. And also from among the Jews, and also from among, but also from among the Gentiles. So from people throughout the world, all of the different rebellious communities and sinful people, God himself, instead of abandoning mankind to his own way, has said, my mercy to you, and my mercy to you, and you are my people, and you are my people, and you are my people. You have my compassion. You have my love. Oh, what a merciful God. It says it like this, uh, still in Romans 9, verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. So we, now we've got the, the, the reverse of that. There he said to them, no mercy, not my people. But then in Christ Jesus... In his grace, he looks upon those Jews and Gentiles you and, that he calls and says, mercy mine. We are his. Isn't that glorious? Oh, I will look on those who are not my people. I will call them my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now here's the difference, and part of the challenge is this. Um, oftentimes, you might be able to see some semblance of recognition between there should be something in a son that resembles his father to some degree. And I've used this example in the past, and, and I'll just share it once again. Um, uh, there was a time during the context of our ministries overseas where um, uh, Jemima and the kids were in Mauritius and I was back and forth between India and Mauritius and the kids were going to a little private school there and Andrew's uh, teacher in that school uh, interacted with him and uh, just listened to the way that he spoke, the way that he phrased his sentences and things which was a little bit distinctive and different than, uh, than, than his peers. And then when eventually I was able to come and meet his teacher, after a brief conversation with her, she said, ah, I now see where Andrew gets it, why he talks like he talks. And I wondered, is that good or bad? You know, and, and I think it was good, son. Um, and but the, the, there often will be a resemblance. I remember heard stories of even at times before they had the ability to do DNA tests, where there where where there might be paternity questions involved. You know, and a man says, "No, this is not my child," but then it has that gravely sloping forehead and that swooping eagle nose just like daddy it's like yeah no that is your boy because there is a resemblance that, that is that that is that glorious sense we who were by nature children of wrath who who by our on our own did not resemble god because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus that sets us free, that makes us sons of God, 
what do we now live like? Now, Jesus was the Son of God, and he always pleased his Father in everything that he did. He was the exact representation of his Father. Now, we have been made sons of God in Christ, and we are being transformed from degree to degree into his glorious image. So Christ was there with perfection, but we are not what we were. We are also not yet what we will be because we will be like Christ. When we see him, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. But listen, as we study the scriptures, we may be glimpsing through a glass dimly, but we catch glimpses of his glory, of his excellence, of his radiance, of his beauty. His obedience and his perfection. And from degree to degree, the Spirit of God working through the Word, making us more like Christ. Isn't it, isn't it a blessing? Oh. And so I just, uh, a, a few more thoughts I want us to see in this section before we close. Now, turning from the condition of men, we see the Most High. In chapter, in verse 8, it says this. The Most High... Gave nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God or rulers. But the Lord apportioned Jacob as his people. There's just a few things I want us to, to, to see in this that we don't often get. First of all, note this. God's a divine creator. He made everything and he is sovereign over creation. Over every aspect of it over all of the rulers that are down. And so for us to understand some scope of God's sovereignty, it even declares to us that he is, he is sovereign, not only over creation, but we can get a more tangible experience of that in seeing that God is sovereign over the nations. God is the one who separated each nation into each nation. Do you remember back when they were at the Tower of Babel, how did it happen? They were all divided, weren't they? And they all went out different ways. Did each one of them choose? Who wants to be Egyptian? And no, no, they didn't, they didn't get a choice. Did they get to vote? Did they get to offer up? No, God mixed up their languages. And so this guy now spoke the language of that guy. And who made all of the decisions as to who would get what language? And thus be gathered together as a people. Who made those decisions? God. Entirely. Could someone defy that decision? No, because he, he put that language in them. And that was it. And then he divided the nations. The scripture tells us uh, where they would go. What regions. He's the one who apportioned their boundaries. He's the one that set all of those events into place. He's the one who establishes and sets up kings, we're even reminded in Daniel chapter 4. And so, so you see all of that power unfolding itself. And what's interesting is this, um, and, and sometimes I think we miss this, and I just want to ask us and encourage us to, to dig a little deeper and consider a little bit more. Because as, as we get further and further from the days of the New Testament, we somehow think we get better and better at 
doing things. And so we think maybe we can do better than the apostles did. And better than uh, th those who went before us. And what's, uh, what's messy about that is um, the things that we're considering here. That God is sovereign over creation. God is sovereign over the nations. God is, God is absolutely so sovereign over the boundaries of the nations. Uh, boundaries which may move from time to time in war to war. That's not a surprise. Because even you can see in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 30. It says this. How could one have chased a thousand? And how could two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up when they lost the boundaries of their territory? It's because God himself had changed the boundaries in punishment of them. When they recovered it and expanded, it's because God himself had given it to them. So that God is absolutely in control of all those things. And so a right, uh, that simple sense of the glory and sovereignty of God kind of gets lost in the modern gospel presentation. I mean, the tendency modernly is to jump to love. And I tell you, I'm so thankful for the love of God in Christ. We'll never play fast and light with the love of God or, or, or declare it as unimportant. But who is this God who loves? Who is he? And, and, and let me turn your attention briefly to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we have Paul the apostle in Athens sharing the gospel with a completely unchurched, unregenerate people. And interesting to me, he never mentions love. Not that it would have been wrong to. But what he does mention, strangely, are things that we don't. So God help us. He says this, and it's going to sound a lot like what we've been listening to. He says this, in verse 26 of Acts 17 of God. He made from one man every nation. Here he is, sovereign over all creation. To live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, Here's God. He made it all. He controls it all. He hand, he, he's involved with it all. He reminds them in verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. For we are all indeed God's offspring. But God's offspring, how can we think of God in gold and silver and stone? But verse 30 then says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. Who is this one that is coming to judge the living and the dead? The one who is risen. His very son, Jesus Christ. And so here in, in, in this presentation of the gospel, what does Paul declare? A sovereign creator who has been sovereign over all history and all events in creation, uh, who has in his sovereignty allowed men to follow the evil desires of their own will. But he has declared to them the necessity of repentance and to be aware that he is the sovereign judge. Those are serious things. Serious things that cannot be taken lightly. You... 
He declares all men everywhere to repent. The, the sense of responsibility since he has made us, since because of him we have life and breath and everything, we should note this, we owe to him everything. So repent. Because apart from him, Nothing matters. Apart from him, nothing endures. Apart from him, nothing has value and significance. And on that last day, those who will come through the judgment received by God because of his mercy will cry out, salvation belongs to our God. We will for all eternity re remember and recite the fact that God is most high. God exists and is the source of all existence. Sovereign over creation. Sovereign over every nation. Sovereign over every event in human history. Sovereign over salvation. My sovereign Savior to whom I bend the knee. And those who in this life still do not and defy in their obstinance to bend the knee. The scripture reminds us that on the day of judgment, when he comes in glory and majesty, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone, even those being judged, they will acknowledge what they have denied. They will submit to what they have defied because God is is God most high. Not only is he most high, we get to say, my God. And he, in mercy, looks upon us in Christ and says, my people, I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's pray. God, we are such a blessed people to have your mercy. Thank you for your word that shows us the, the condition of men centuries after centuries, time after time, from creation to the flood to the nation of Israel, just the sinful bent of men. And Lord, we thank you. We are who we are because of your grace and mercy you've given us in Christ Jesus before ages began. We do not take it lightly. We do not take it for granted. Thank you for your word that gives us a glimpse to the best that our hearts and minds can conceive of the fact that you alone are God, most high, exalted, majestic. May we live to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.